Hey, Common Thread people. It's good to be with you again. Ryan Smith here, pastor at Common Thread Church. Um, this is our Threadcast. This is where we dive a little deeper uh, into what we're studying. And yesterday in our Sunday gathering was a great conversation. Um, we are in the book of Romans, if you're joining us for the first time. And we've been doing this theme called Replacing Power and Privilege with Peace and just kind of walking through the idea that this is what Romans is all about. We've been doing it backwards, actually. We've been in it a while, even though we're only in chapter 4 today. Um, but we've been talking about, um, you know, just we, we went through it backwards, started in, in 14 and on, just so we could show that Paul um, is dealing with two groups of people. He's dealing specifically with the church in Rome. Uh, he calls them weak and strong. The first group is the weak is the Jewish Christians. The strong are the Gentile Christians. They're at odds. We've talked about that. Um, and Paul's goal was to unite the Jewish and Gentile people, uh, Christians, and make them one. Um, you know, we've talked about how there was already strife even before they were Christians, and then after they became Christians, how there was even more strife. And Paul wants to unite these people. He wants this to be a a kingdom, a church, a community of people who who show what it means, who shows what it means to be love, to be one, to be community. And if he can get these two groups of people to be one, then he has been successful, right? We've been talking about that. And so um, in the beginning of Romans 1, 2, and 3, he is trying to level the playing field um, because both the weak and the strong, they, they push back from each other. And especially the weak, the Jewish Christians, um, they've had a long history of feeling privileged and feeling like they are the ones in charge and that they should be the ones who speak for God and that they should tell the Gentile Christians how to live and specifically that they should live by the Torah because that's what God implemented. And so, um, you know, talked about doing all the uh, Jewish practices, even though they were Christians. And, and Paul saying, no, 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 no. This, when Jesus implemented his new way, uh, the third way of living, um, the Torah is good, but it's not what we live by. And the Torah does not bring your righteousness. It doesn't bring you into relationship with God anymore. Um, and because of the weak, the Jewish Christians were very deep into this idea that if I do these things, if I look differently from the world, if I follow what the Torah says, if I follow the laws, then God's going to love me more and more and more. And Paul, in, in writing all this, says, no, 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 no. He's trying to say, you cannot earn God's love this way. You cannot earn his righteousness, his grace, his mercy. It's given to all. And so he's laying this play, play um, laying leveling the playing ground, sorry. Um, and four is the last of this kind of introduction in trying to level the playing ground and trying to set, put them all on the same page. And so um, remember, he spends a little bit more time um, humbling the, the weak, the Jewish Christians, because they are so strong in what they believe. And so that's what we have. It's kind of heavy-handed here. And remember, we want to say that this isn't a reference to all Jewish people. It's not a reference to all Gentile people. It's to the Jewish and Christian people specifically in Rome. And yes, some of this will um, flood out into other churches, and yes, it has implications for us, but we have to start there that it is for those people. And so in chapter 4, he pulls out the last stop, the last thing to these to the weak, to the Jewish Christians, something that they hold dearly to is that all Jews um, held their lineage, could trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham, that he was the father of everyone. He was the beginning uh, for them of what it means to have a, a faith, a Jewish relationship with God. And so Paul pulls out this last stop, and he starts off, um, 
and he kind of lays, lays this question out. Now, for those, we've talked a little bit about this, but we kind of hit it. We haven't spent a lot of time in it. I'm not going to do it today, but, but circumcision. Circumcision was a physical act. Um, if you don't know what it is, um, look it up. Google it. Um, stay away from the pictures, though. <laughs> um, but it was this act that people did. Usually they did it with their, with their children when they were born, if you are born into a Jewish family. But if you were a Gentile and you came into the Jewish faith, you were asked to be circumcised because circumcision was a physical act that um, represented what you had believed. It was it was one of the biggest indicators um, of their of who they were as a Jewish person was their circumcision. And so he starts off with this question in verse nine: Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, or also for the or uncircumcised? Hmm. Let's think about that. You know, and, and in the in the week in the Jewish Christian's mind, it had to go with the circumcision. But he says, we've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. So they knew Abraham's history. They knew the story of Abraham. And they knew this idea that it says in the Old Testament that Abraham was given righteousness by his faith. So he's using their language that they understand. And he's, and he's just pointing out what is there. He's not tricking them, right? And then in 10, under what circumcision, or what, under what, it's not circumcision, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? And so he's getting them to think here. He's asking them, hey, I want you to think about this. He says, it was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then... So what they're saying there basically is that he received his righteousness, that he was a part of God's family uh, because of his faith, not because the act of circumcision. So then, he is the father. He's the beginning. He's the he's the he's the alpha of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to him. So the idea is that if he received his righteousness um, before circumcision, and he is the father of our faith, he's the father of what we do. Then he is the father of all those. Not who were circumcised, like we've thought, but those who were uncircumcised, because that's when he received his righteousness. Is that making sense? Shake your head yes. Okay, good, good. If it's not, then you're you go back and think through this a little bit more. I don't have anything else for you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and he, and so in verse 12 it says, And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So he's basically saying here that, hey, you Jewish people, uh, you can trace your lineage back to Abraham, and that's great, but hey, guess what? Uh, it's not just for the circumcised. He is the father of all. And then in verse 13, he says this, it was not through the law, and the law is the Torah. Remember, these are these are what the, the Jewish Christians have been holding on to, the weak ones. The law that Abraham, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. So he's saying the Torah didn't make this promise. The Torah didn't make this this the, this promise about Abraham and his heirs, 
but it's the righteousness that comes through the faith that Abraham had. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless. So we're saying if you've got the law, if you've got this code, if you've got this checklist, and you're doing those checklists of things, then faith doesn't, you don't need faith, right? You, you, you're you checking down the list, um, but that negates the promise, that it takes out the requirement of faith. In verse 15, because the law brings wrath. Because in the law, you have to do something. If you don't do it, then there's consequences, which is wrath. And the truth is, I and I don't don't quote me on this, there's 500, 600, somewhere, I, don't, I forget what it is now, a laws in the Torah, in the Old Testament. And there's absolutely no way that one person can keep all those laws. And so there's no gray area. It's you follow the law or you face the wrath. And so what he's saying is that if we live by the Torah, if you live by those things, then you only bring wrath on yourself. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. But in 16 he says, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. And so, he, you know, he's not, he, he's, he's kind of, he's saying, hey, that circumcision thing, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? It's part, it was part of the process. Um, but Abraham is not just bound by the circumcision, but he's bound by the faith. He, he brings those to, to those who have faith. And, and you can have faith um, before circumcision, right? Um, that actually comes. Circumcision becomes, comes because of your faith, right? And so there, he's simply saying, hey, Jewish Christians in Rome, hey, Gentile Christians in Rome, you're looking for something to, to unite us? Abraham, he is the father of us all. And so, you know, that's his last his last nugget that he throws out to, to pull into this. But then he says this other thing. He closes chapter 4 with this. And this is why, this is the challenge as to, so what do we do with Abraham? And it says this. He gives him a little history lesson. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Um, so again, um, this is part of that, that first part. Um, but this 18, this is where I really wanted to I would focus. I forgot about reading 17 um, with that last section here. Sorry. But here's 18. Against all hope, Abraham and hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. We'll come back to this, but just follow along. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. We talked about this yesterday. The, the, Paul's calling him an old fart. He's, he's on his deathbed. Since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. I mean, she's completely, you know, there, her, her womb is dried up. There's no way, no ovulation. None of this stuff is, is happening in her body, right? Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, us Gentile Christians or Jewish Christians, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And so he steps back from the story and says, hey, my audience, 
Know that this this righteousness is for all of us, just like it was for Abraham. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This story, it all comes to, to fruition because of what Jesus did. That's the unifier. He says Abraham unifies us, but even more so, Jesus. Jesus unifies us, unifies us through righteousness because of what he did, because of what he died. And so back to this 18, this is the, the challenge that he says, against all hope. Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations. So it's this conversation that um, he received righteousness because of his faith, but this faith was connected to this concept of hope and that he had hope um, in what shouldn't be, right? And so that's where I want us to to kind of sit in the moment right now is this concept of faith and hope. We talked about it a little bit yesterday, and Hannah Pickstone gave us some great thoughts to come through this. But the relationship between faith and and hope can be illustrated in the joy a child feels when his father tells him they are going to an amusement park uh, tomorrow, right? The child believes that he will go to the amusement park based on his father's word. That is faith. At the same time, that belief within the child kindles an irrepressible joy, and that is hope. The child's natural trust in his father's promise is the faith. The child's squeals of delight and jumping in place are the expression uh, of the hope. And so faith and hope are complementary. Faith is grounded in the reality of the past, and I would say the present. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But hope is looking to the reality of the future. Without faith, there is no hope. And without hope, there is no true faith. Now, they're separate things because in scriptures you'll find that, you know, uh, that they're talked about in the same sense differently. You know, faith, hope, and love, and the the last of these is love, right? Um, So they're different, but they are together. So Christians are people of faith and hope. In Titus 1-2, it says, We have the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And so, some things I want you to think about... um, about with faith and hope, and just um, I found these. These are not unique to me. Um, if you want some some more in this, let me know, and I'll give you where I found these. But here are eleven statements about faith and hope that I want you to just kind of wrestle with and think through. So faith is given by God to know God. Okay, so here's what I mean: faith's object is God, His goodness and power. Faith grows through the revelation of who He is. By the Holy Spirit. So it gains strength as we know God better. Second, faith's anchor is assessing accurately who God is. Now this is huge, right? Because to have faith, you've got to have you've got to know what you're having faith in. And so uh, their statement, all things are possible through God, but it really is this idea of us grasping how great who God is. And so um when we un- misunderstand who God is, our faith wanes, right? Um, so this is huge that we accurately wrestle and, and marinate and think through and come to know who God is. Not in its completeness, but more and more as that's revealed to us. The other thing, faith is active. Faith lives and um, assesses God's kingdom, right? And so faith has movement. Faith is uh, is defined by demonstration. So so faith is something that we are not just going to believe, but it's at something that 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 
bubbles forth in us through our, our feet and our hands and our words and our actions, right? It's something that we do. Faith is the substance of hope, and hope awakens faith. I love that statement. There is this interactive dynamic between faith and hope. Faith gives life to hope, and hope strengthens our faith, right? That complementary uh, um, relationship. Um, you can't have one without the other, in a sense. Um, fifth, faith is coming into agreement with what God is saying, and hope anticipates its reality, okay? Um so it's this idea that we have faith as to what God says, what he does. And faith comes into agreement and believes each promise um, that we have seen in God's written word, that he's spoken. And then our hope is the one that, that anticipates what those things are to happen. Uh, the proof of our faith is hope. So when we have hope in God, we prove that faith is active, right? And that's, a t- that's an interesting statement. So just kind of think through that one a little bit more. Seven, without faith, hope is only a wish or it's powerless. Faith honors what we believe is possible. And so there's a statement that simply says, unbelief is simply the faith in the inferior, right? And so um, this idea um, how do I put it? This idea that um faith is it puts gives us at words of action right it, it gives us this idea that that things sh- that should not be things that should not be you know what they 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 can be right when when the world says there's no way you can replace power and privilege with peace like no no there really is there really it's been done i know it and god promises it and this it, it does work right um, so that's one. Uh, number nine. nine. Nine is supposed to say hope looks to the future while faith lays hold of the past. Right? We talked about this earlier um, that um, faith was in the um, – was. Well, I, I totally wrote that one down wrong. It's really hope looks to the future while faith lays hold of the present, right? But it's also the past. So our faith – is in the past because we can trust of what God has done. It's in the present because uh, it lives, it, 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 it activates what we do now, but hope looks to the future um, and gives us something beyond what is now, right? And so by faith, we understand. Now, here's the deal. Most of us need to understand something first before we have faith, but that's not what the Bible says. Uh, the Bible says that we have faith in order to understand. So faith is understanding, like you know, and it does, and that's a weird way of putting it. But it's this idea that you can't be in relationship with God without having faith, and it doesn't make sense. You can't understand God more without faith, right? And for us logical people and those who use science to prove things, this that's that's a sticky one, right? That's sticky. Um, that that I that I can understand through faith that doesn't make sense, but that's part of it, right? And then finally, faith is not presumption. The difference between faith and presumption is faith is our response to God's word and revelation. Presumption is our expectation of God to do something He did not say, right? So this is the idea. This is where it comes down to that faith and hope. Um, 
challenge us, but it's not a hope in what we want, right? It's not a hope in what we expect. It's not a hope that so-and-so will not have cancer anymore. It's not, it's not all these things that we put on to God. It's not a presumption. It's trusting in what God has said. And um, Hannah gave us the great quote yesterday in our, in our Zoom gathering, and I wish it's a great time to put it up right now. Um, she quoted a, a, from a, a TV show, The Split. Um, and one person says, It will be all right in the end. And then another person responds, But what if it's not? And the person responds back, Then it's not the end, right? That's when we know um, that our faith is not presumption because sometimes when we think it's the end, when we think we can't go any further or when we think it should be this way and it doesn't end that way, that's sometimes that's one of those moments that's a faith crisis, right? But then it re- makes us simply re- know that it's not over. It's not the end. There's something else that God has in store and that's when our faith and our hope are challenged and not our own presumptions. And let's be honest, Every person, every person in this world makes presumptions. A lot of us want to say, this is what God has spoken into my life. This is what, and, and I think sometimes that is true, but I think sometimes in that we also misinterpret that. And so um, we have to be careful with this idea. We can still have hope, but faith and hope together says that I have faith and hope in what God promises, not in what I desire. So, um, some thoughts for about faith and hope this week. And what I'd love for you to do um, as we close out this uh, threadcast is to walk through these 11 things. Remember, um, hope looks to the future while faith lays hold of the present is what's supposed to say on number nine. But just um, in our comments, in our faith life, um, we're going to try to get some conversation going this week. Um, just kind of put out there, which one of these do you wrestle with the most? Which one of these do you struggle with the most? And it's okay to. You don't have to agree with all these. I'm all, I'm all right with that. Uh, these weren't given to us by God. Um, there's somebody's thoughts. Um, but where do you push back? Um, where are you challenged? What does it make you think of? Um, how does it change your paradigm of faith and hope and understanding God? Um, where does it make you mad, maybe? But um, how do you respond to one of these 11 statements? And uh, let's... Let's have some interaction together on Faith Life this week. Hope you have a great day, grace, and peace.